on May 28th, cheering crowds gathered outside the presidential palace in the Turkish capital of Ankara. Waving flags with phones in hand, they awaited the victor of the recent presidential election in Turkey. After two rounds of voting, Erdogan defeated his opposition rival, Kemal Gilechdorolu. Eventually, the president and his wife walked out to greet their supporters. He told them, It is time to unite and unify around our national goals and national dreams, leaving aside all discussions and disputes regarding the election period. This week, how did Erdogan secure another electoral success? Why did the opposition vote falter? And what might the next five years hold for Turkey's strongman leader and his country? I'm Hugo Goodridge, and you're listening to The New Arab Voice. To start with, the basics. There were two main contenders to be president. Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the incumbent for the past 20 years, and the leader of the Justice and Development Party, or AKP, and his opponent, Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, the leader of the Republican People's Party, or CHP. In this election, Kılıçdaroğlu was picked to be the candidate by a coalition of six opposition parties. In the run-up to the first round of voting, anticipation was high that the opposition might be able to dislodge Erdogan from office. The opposition ran a campaign that mainly highlighted the fact that they weren't Erdogan and that they could solve all of Turkey's problems. At a rally in Çanakkale on April 11th, Gilets Jarolu told the crowds, I know all of Turkey's problems. We know them all and we will solve them all. We have the knowledge, we have the experience and we have the strength. This strength is you, no one else. The power is the people. It is you. However, when the results from the first round came in, all that hope and optimism drained away. Kamal Kilichdorolu secured 44.8% of the vote, while his rival, Erdogan, came away with 49.5% of the vote. A second round had been anticipated, but it was hoped that the gap between the two frontrunners would be much narrower. Following the first round of voting, Kılıçdaroğlu gave a speech in Ankara. If our nation says second round, we gladly accept it. We will absolutely win this election in the second round. Everyone will see that. The voters of Turkey proved Kılıçdaroğlu wrong. And when they went to the polls on May 28th, they elected Erdogan for yet another five-year term. The final results gave Erdogan 52.1% of the vote. So what happened to all that enthusiasm for change in Turkey? Where did the opposition go wrong? There was a weird thing going on with the opposition. I think they were really confident, but I also think that they felt they had to exude confidence. This is Howard Eisenstadt. Howard is an associate professor at St. Lawrence University and a non-resident scholar at the Middle East Institute. 
I think this, the feeling was that if they didn't win big, that Erdogan would somehow challenge the election. And so they didn't want to win by 50.1% or whatever. They, they, they felt really strongly that they had to, they had to win by several percentage points to overcome uh, Erdogan's inclination to hold on to power. They may have been overselling it, and I suspect they were kind of overselling it to themselves. Given the ever-growing authoritarian manner in which Erdogan has conducted himself in office, it is perhaps not unreasonable to suspect that the president would do everything in his power to cling on to office. It is also not unreasonable for the opposition to talk up their chances and to try and drum up some support and confidence among their followers. Unfortunately, this was combined with a campaign that, according to Howard, failed to inspire. The the opposition uh, was a broad coalition. They were unified mostly in their disdain for Erdogan, but didn't necessarily have a lot in common besides that. Uh, that meant that their messaging was kind of banal. Getting rid of Erdogan was a key objective for the opposition and many in the electorate. But beyond that, the plan going forward didn't seem all too clear. The opposition's campaign was not particularly hard-hitting. It was meant to be more reassuring than to be aggressive. They certainly talked about household issues. They talked about the price of onions and, you know, the economy. And, and you know, I, I, I think that there's a lot of post hoc finger pointing, uh, as there always is when a campaign fails. I don't think that they ran a tremendously bad campaign. Obviously, now that, that they've lost, we're hearing about all the things that they, they didn't do, like they didn't buy Facebook ads, whereas most of the less tech-savvy internet users in Turkey are more likely to be using Facebook than watching clever things on Twitter. Additionally, there was a problem with who was delivering that message. They had a lackluster candidate. In Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, he seems like a fine person. He seems like a he would make a good leader, but he's not somebody who who people are excited about. But in fairness, part of the reason that Kılıçdaroğlu uh, was able to secure the candidacy was because President Erdogan had engineered the courts to prosecute the most charismatic of the JHP candidates. With this recent election, the opposition started on the back foot, while the incumbent, Erdogan, started really a couple of steps from the finishing line. It was by design, Erdogan's design. Over the past 20 years, Erdogan has guided Turkey down an authoritarian path, centralising increasing levels of power around himself and doing away with anyone who would stand in his way or raise a critical voice. Opposition politicians, journalists and activists have been jailed. In October, the government passed a law that criminalised the dissemination of quote-unquote false information. The vast majority of television, print and online news is either controlled by the state or by individuals with close ties to the government. During the election, they pumped their time and resources into providing positive coverage for Erdogan and either ignored the opposition or ran negative stories. At the time of the vote, at least 58 journalists and media employees were in Turkish prisons. 
and as previously mentioned, jailing charismatic and popular opposition politicians is an effective way of ensuring that you don't have to face them at the ballot box. The problem is it was a marked deck of cards. Erdogan controlled the rules of the game. Kilic Darulu made mistakes, but the hill that he had to climb was so steep that it's not, I, you know, counterfactuals are tough. You know, we can imagine, well, what if, what if the opposition had done this or that? But Erdogan's very talented at demonizing the, uh, his opposition, but he also has all the tools of the state and full control of the media or nearly full control of the media uh, to do so. I, I, it's, there were some anecdotal um, stories about voting irregularities, uh, but no real solid evidence of fraud and nothing to suggest that there was any sort of interference that significantly altered the outcome of the vote. The general consensus is that both the first and second round of the voting was free. But by any measure, it was not fair. The advantages for Erdogan were massive and cannot be understated. It is also worth noting that, like him or loathe him, Erdogan is an extremely talented politician and campaigner. Erdogan is a politician of extraordinary talent. He channels the language and the culture of working class and sort of middle strata urban Turkey in a way that, that nobody else does. He understands the, the emotive language of a broad swath of the Turkish public. And, and he's very good at demonizing, as any good populist, he's very good at demonizing uh, the opposition. He painted them as disloyal. He painted them as lackeys of the West. He painted them as friends of terrorists. It's for him very comfortable territory. For Erdogan, it's fortunate that he's such a good politician and campaigner, because it would be difficult to promote him based on his record in office. Over the past 18 months, the economy in Turkey and the value of the Turkish lira have crashed and then fallen even further. Inflation is currently sitting at around 50%, inflicting daily fiscal pain on the population. Much of the blame for these economic woes have been put directly at Erdogan's feet, his highly unorthodox economic ideas and his obsession with low interest rates. During his last term, the president also came under fire for both his government's slow response to the devastating earthquake that killed tens of thousands of people and the corrupt building contracts that saw apartment blocks built and sold which were entirely unsuitable for an earthquake-prone area. While these are both undoubtedly important issues, they fell down the list of importance behind a different issue. The big issue that I think dominates Turkish political discourse is migrants and refugees. Turkey is currently hosting at least 4 million refugees, many of whom fled the brutal civil war in Syria. Over the years, they have become the punching bag for a number of politicians who have blamed the vulnerable group for any and all of the country's ills. While it was an issue for all sides going into the first round, Candidate Sinan Oan stepped forward with the strongest and most nativist rhetoric against refugees. And I think that a lot of the issues around the economy and whatnot got filtered into that sort of anti-migrant, anti-refugee 
uh, language. And, I, and I, that's one of the reasons why Sinan Oan was able to, to do so well in the first round. He got you know better than 5% of the vote. And he wasn't until now a household name. He's a sort of unknown political figure, but not sort of first tier, but was able to do quite well because he hammered on this issue. And, and following a first round performance that didn't deliver as expected, the opposition grabbed on the issue. You know, the opposition attempted to embrace that sort of anti-migrant stuff, which was always part of their their profile, but they really embraced it, doubled down on it in language that sounds kind of fascist in the the runoff, but it sounded so strange after their campaign of love vibe in the first round that that I don't think it was was necessarily super persuasive. At a rally in Antakya on May 23rd, five days before the final vote, Gilet Shirolu addressed supporters. Our project is ready to send all refugees back to their home countries without any racism. We, the coalition leaders, made a decision. We will send them all back to their home countries within two years at the latest. Within two years at the latest. There are some suggestions that this nativist turn put some of Kilich Dorolu's voters off and cost him in places. This may be true. Equally, the inverse is just as likely. He probably picked up some floating voters. Either way, it was not enough, and probably was never going to be enough to swing the result. The die had already been cast. With voting now over, what can we learn about the voters? and their choices on the ballot slips. We see this increased polarisation uh, geographically. We see people seeming to, to separate themselves. You, you'll have towns and regions where there's really clear CHP support versus towns and regions that have really strong AKP support. People have commented, and, and I think it's certainly true, that, that major metropolitan areas, the, the biggest cities, uh, went for the CHP, though Ankara and Istanbul, it's actually pretty close in both of those cities. Like they went for the CHP, but they didn't go for the CHP in the sort of huge numbers that we see in other places, as opposed to, to Izmir, where, where the CHP was clearly the victor. In Istanbul, traditionally a more liberal area and an easy win for opposition candidates, Kelec in the second round got 51.7% of the vote. And in Ankara, he got by with just 51.2%. Some of it's class-bound. And it's, it's you know, probably fair to talk about AKP voters as being on the whole lower strata, that areas that have traditionally been more engaged with the outer world, tourist regions, whatever, can, uh, typically went for the opposition. You know, when I look at this, and... and I'm not a sociologist and I haven't done a deep dive into the numbers, but what I see is is mostly that Erdogan has been able to capture uh, the imagination of new urbanites. Yes, he's got rural votes, but a lot of that's clientelism. In rural districts, clientelistic systems are still really powerful. What I see when I look at, at the map of Istanbul and, and sort of the differences between regions, I see the power of this migratory wave, this new urbanites, and sort of the resentments that they have, the worries about rapid modernization. And that, for me, 
fits a story that's that's not necessarily Middle Eastern, it's transnational. I, I think that that's the base of populism in lots of countries. Erdogan was able to secure electoral victory on Sunday night because of his undoubted ability to connect with the electorate. He won because the opposition's campaign failed to excite as it was hoped and expected. Erdogan won because he had an advantage of being the incumbent. But most crucially, Erdogan won because the system was designed to ensure his victory. Even if the opposition had run a flawless campaign, victory for Erdogan was still the most likely outcome. So, it's five more years. What's next? What we are going to see is that Erdogan's margin of victory allows him with a lot of room to maneuver on economy, on foreign policy, on domestic politics. This is Sona Kagapçay, senior fellow and director of the Turkish Research Programme at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Given the severity of the situation, the economy will likely be on the top of his to-do pile. And if he needed any more incentive to take action, news that the value of the Turkish lira slumped further following the announcement that he had been elected should have lit a fire underneath him. Rumours that he might bring uh, former Turkish economy minister Mehmet Şimşek, one of the wunderkinds of Turkish economy and its performance in the earlier years of Erdogan government, back into his administration as an economy minister. If that happens, Şimşek is not going to come back if he doesn't have some kind of a mandate to eventually re-embrace orthodox economic policies. If a figure like Mehmet Şimşek was handed the economic reins, then there would likely be a sigh of relief from the markets. According to reports, Erdogan and Şimşek met on Monday, the day after he was re-elected. However, it might not be an economic handbrake turn and more of a lengthy three-point turn. Uh, I would say that Lira is going to lose some of its value. Erdogan is probably going to allow that to fluctuate because a weak Lira means Turkey's uh, tourism services become affordable. Summer is tourism season. I think that Turkey will probably break a record in terms of tourist arrivals this year and revenue. It was already the fifth most visited country last year, competing with France and Italy. And it might catch up with these countries, perhaps. And so that's uh, lots of revenues and also uh, devalued lira means cheaper exports. Maybe, uh, you know, once Turkey's economy benefits from these inflows, both export driven and tourism driven, I can see kind of Erdogan also trying to increase interest rates and embracing the more orthodox policy. So the margin of victory that leaves him comfortable in his position allows him to play and to tweak uh, policies, including regarding the economy. In recent months, Turkey has been helped by a number of foreign powers to plug some of the economic holes. In March, Saudi Arabia deposited $5 billion in Turkey's central bank, and Russia has similarly been sending money to Ankara, one of its lifelines to evade Western sanctions following its illegal invasion of Ukraine. With another five years ahead of us, will we see business as usual for Turkey and its foreign partners? Probably. What that means is transactionalist foreign policy between U.S. and Russia. Erdogan has been doing this for about half a decade now, ever since Putin reached out to him in the aftermath of the failed coup attempt in 2016. Turkish foreign policy has moved from being aligned with U.S. to a more transactionalist line. So that means Erdogan will leverage Turkish veto over Sweden's NATO accession in return for Biden's commitment 
to get F-16 fighter planes to Turkey and also maybe to get a visit to Washington um, sometime this summer before the U.S. campaign season starts. But similarly, I can also see him having a summit with Putin this summer uh, because it does, he doesn't have to pick one or the other. And of course, Putin uh, will probably want Erdogan to delay Sweden's next NATO accession for his own reasons. But I think Erdogan is going to realize that this is an important take, uh, ask for Biden and will probably try to deliver it if the Swedes first deliver regarding Turkey's demands on counterterrorism policy. Sweden has a new counterterrorism law that's going to go effect on June 1st. And I think Ankara wants to see results first before it takes any steps. Turkey has been particularly aggrieved by the presence of Kurdish fighters in Sweden, which Ankara views as terrorists. Uh, I also see Turkish ties with Gulf countries continuing to improve. I think that Turkey has already reset with Saudis and Emiratis and Egyptians and Israelis, members of the new Middle East Quartet already uh, before the elections. And the last sign of that is that Egypt and Turkey decided to reinstate their ambassadors in the runoff phase. I think that was Sisi's way of saying that I know Erdogan is going to win. Let me just reset with him before he's there and busy to take my phone call. There can be an Erdogan Sisi meeting coming up. And I think that Turkish Gulf ties will continue to improve. Erdogan mentioned only two groups of foreign countries in the campaign season that he was grateful towards. He said they have helped me. One is Russia and one is Gulf monarchies. So I would say that's where we're going to see uh, improvement in ties. As a NATO member who maintains a working relationship with Russia and has grown ties across the Middle East, Erdogan has a fair amount to offer on a few different sides, which all have the potential to bring in the gains. Closer to home, Erdogan's authoritarian bent helped him to skew the system to ensure victory last Sunday, a trend which will, again, likely continue. And perhaps, quite perversely, it might be the best-case scenario. With a generally middling win, there's no great need for a sweeping crackdown against the opposition. Nor was his win so comprehensively great that he could afford to give in to the very worst successes of his far-right allies and start to implement highly illiberal and arcane social policies. Also because the election outcome will probably result in a mid-to-short-term brain drain from Turkey. Educated classes and youth who really had a, a hope uh, that they embrace that they could vote Erdogan out will now lose any hope that Erdogan can be voted out. If you can't defeat him when inflation is 50%, when? Mm. And that uh, exodus will probably help Erdogan because these are the organizers of civil society and they are the connective tissue between Turkey and Europe, Turkey and global civil societies. If they're leaving, uh, it doesn't matter how many people oppose Erdogan. The leadership is not there. So I think it makes it easier for him to defeat the opposition in the long term including uh, starting with the local elections, but in the long term, definitely in general elections, if the exodus continues. And I'm afraid that's going to be a dynamic uh, between Turkey and Europe in the months and years coming up. The authoritarian path has worked and is working well for Erdogan. And if it ain't broke, don't fix it. It won't be long, though, before Erdogan and his party will have to go back to the country's voters. This time for local elections. Erdogan's game plan for the next uh, year is going to be to divide the opposition. If the opposition is split up among across left-right lines, there's no way that it can hold on to Istanbul and Ankara. I think Erdogan really wants to take Istanbul and Antalya. Ankara might be more uh, difficult given its demographics. 
Uh, Istanbul and Antalya are probably the biggest rent producers among Turkey's cities in terms of new construction, zoning, revenues. And he wants those cities in the hands of his uh, party and his allies. Erdogan will have to adopt a different strategy at next year's local elections. At the recent presidential election, it was all security and prestige and geopolitics. Those kind of campaigning will not have an impact on you know, who becomes Istanbul's mayor. I think people are more worried about transportation, new metro lines, better governance, better services. So there's going to be a big discussion of that. Erdogan will probably say to the electorate, look, I control uh, all the funds. Turkey is a heavily centralized state. Local governments rely on central government for two-thirds of their revenue. He's going to say, do you really want to pick opposition mayor or do you want to pick me and I'll deliver metro lines? And so I wouldn't be surprised, for example, if he runs his uh, urban and uh, construction minister as his Istanbul mayoral candidate. Istanbul's biggest problem right now is transportation. That's his way of telling Istanbul citizens, vote for my candidate and I'll deliver you 10 metro lines in the next five years. So we'll see. I think those advantages will help him. But Istanbul is a complex and diverse place. The recent election presented the most serious electoral challenge to Erdogan in recent memory. But the system worked as it was supposed to, and he was able to achieve a moderately comfortable win. His thoughts will undoubtedly now turn to the next five years. But amid speculation that this was the 69-year-old's last election, the next five years will also be his last opportunity to secure his legacy. Final words to Howard Eisenstadt. I think that he's in a better position to make compromises. Uh, So I can imagine uh, at least some of the easier outstanding issues between him and his Western allies can be addressed more easily now than they could have been before the election. So he's, he's got a certain degree of freedom there. But I think that, you know, now he has to secure secure his legacy. And that speaks to, you know, what comes after him, what kind of governance comes after him. And, and I, I don't think that that's clear at all. You know, sort of who wins out post-Erdogan. This episode of The New Arab Voice was written and produced by me, Hugo Goodrich. Our theme music was by Omar El Phil. The New Arab Voice will be back next week. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter account, both at The New Arab Voice, for additional content. We also have a weekly newsletter, which you can sign up for. Find the link in the show notes. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news, analysis and opinion from the region. <laughs>